Well, October 31st, 2017 marks the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And if uh, you are in this church and a part of this church, you are a Protestant. So, happy anniversary, everyone. Without question, the Reformation is one of the most significant events in history, not just church history, but world history. And October 31st, 1517, is the day that commemorates that bold historic act of uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door of the castle church of Wittenberg, Germany. His intention was not to break off from the Roman Catholic Church, but simply to start a conversation. That's what you did in those days. Uh, Local church leaders, uh, students and faculty from the university, they didn't blog. Instead, they would nail papers and essays to the church door. That was sort of the community bulletin board. That's how different ideas and viewpoints were exchanged and debated. And that's really all he intended. Do the teachings and practices of the church square with Scripture? His hope was to reform the Catholic Church, not form a whole new string of Protestant denominations. But obviously, he opened a can of worms. Pun intended. Now, most of you have never studied church history because you never want to. Some of you would rather go to the dentist than sit through a history lesson or a history lecture, but you need to know where you came from. You need to know why you're here and how we got here and why we do some of the things we do and hold to some of the things that we hold to. You are a Protestant. If you're not Catholic or Orthodox, that's all there is. You're a Protestant. And, like it or not, you're Reformed. Some of you uh, more robustly than others. But nonetheless, you are. And there are reasons for that. And you need to know what they are. The Protestant Reformation is just that, a protest of the abuses and errors in the Catholic Church and a reforming of the true biblical New Testament church back to the authority of Scripture, back to the simplicity and purity of the gospel. And so this morning I want to, I want to begin a series talks a little bit about that, and, and today just sort of introduce it to you, introduce the history and the background that led to some of these things. Today we're going to look at three things, the problems that led to reform, uh, the people that led the Reformation, and then the pillars that lead the Reformed. So let's start with the problems that led to reform. If you go to Geneva, Switzerland, as Mike and Shirley Emus had opportunity to do recently, in fact, uh, he can show you some pictures if you would like to see. Um, 
some of what they saw, but you can go there and you can visit the Reformation monument or, or really the wall, the Reformation wall, which honors many of the events and uh, documents and leaders of the Reformation, particularly the, the Swiss Reformation. But in that wall, among other things, there is chiseled into the marble in huge block letters the Latin phrase post tenebras looks. After darkness, light. And that really became sort of the, the motto of the Reformation, especially the, the Reformation in Switzerland. But it refers to the rediscovery or the recovery of biblical truth after centuries, really, of, of spiritual darkness. And so I want to begin there this morning, just to sort of uh, expose you to some of the darkness, some of that tenebras. Uh, we know the Middle Ages and the, the medieval church as a pretty dark time in the history of the church. A lot of that was the inevitable result of legalizing Christianity in 312 uh, A.D. Worst thing that ever happened, frankly, in the history of the church, because once that happened, church and state were now united, and the Roman Catholic Church became the Holy Roman Empire, and and really for a thousand years or more, the the church and Christianity grew more by the sword than by the gospel, and so it was a long period of spiritual darkness. Several factors were a part of that: the papacy. First of all, uh, the Pope, from the Latin Papa, was the head of the church and had ultimate authority. Whatever he spoke, whatever he wrote, ex cathedra from his chair was incontrovertible. The seat of all authority over the whole universal church was vested in this one man who was considered infallible. Well, Protestants protest that, and rightly so, particularly when there are doctrines and practices that clearly violate Scripture, as, by the way, even uh, the title, right, even being called Father does. Jesus said, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. But the Pope became the authority, even above Scripture, and, and only the Pope and the church could interpret Scripture. In fact, people didn't have access to the Scripture. It was in Latin. It was read in Latin during Mass. And nobody spoke Latin. They had no idea. That's why it's the Dark Ages. People were kept in darkness. Uh, the only people that knew Latin were the clergy, lawyers, doctors, people who studied professions like that. And so the whole church was in darkness, ignorant to what the Bible actually taught. Then there was the colossal embarrassment known as the Papal Schism. From 1305 to 1377, there were six successive popes, all of French origin. And they weren't ruling in Rome. They were ruling in France. Imagine the humiliation. For centuries, the pope had been the bishop of Rome. Italian, And now for this period, which became known as the Babylonian captivity of the church, because the papacy was now absent from Rome and being held captive in, 
in France, very much like the Israelites were held captive for 70 years to Babylon. Then in, in 1377, an Italian pope was finally elected and the papacy was moved back to Rome. Only the French pope refused to resign. And so now you have the embarrassing fact of two popes ruling the church simultaneously. When both of them were disposed by the cardinals and a, a new pope elected, they both refused to accept that decision. And so for a time there were three popes ruling. And all of them, of course, claiming to be the legitimate successor to Peter, calling the others Antichrist and so on. And all of this just made the, the common people all the more cynical uh, about the church. Add to that the scandalous behavior of the priesthood. It is well documented that the church leaders during this time were living in shameless decadence. In fact, this is the thing that, that shocked Luther and demoralized Luther when he made his pilgrimage to Rome. Luther was this very devout, very reverent, very serious uh, man. He, he he, he viewed sin very seriously. He had studied law, and so he understood the nuances and the technicalities of breaking the law, and he knew that he was a sinner and that he was guilty before God, and he, he lived with that guilt. It, it, it was overwhelming to him, and, and so he would spend hours, even as a monk, going to confession and, and pouring over the sins in his life and and the priest would say, man, you're, you're insane. Go away and come back when you actually have a sin to confess. But he would spend hours in the confessional. Well, with this tender conscience, then, he makes the pilgrimage to Rome as an act of spiritual devotion. And he gets there and he sees how corrupt and how immoral the bishops were in Rome and how they all hired prostitutes, female and male, and this absolutely devastated him. Queen Isabella of Castile, during that time, wrote that the majority of the clergy are living in open concubinage. And if our justice intervenes in order to punish them, they revolt and create a scandal. And they despise our justice to the point that they arm themselves against it. So not even the legal system could correct the corruptions that were going on. So not just at the highest level of popes and cardinals, but at the grassroots level of the local priests, there was all this corruption and greed and immorality. Simony was another expression of that. Simony is a word named after Simon Magus, who tried to buy the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 8? Simony then is the, is the practice of buying or, or selling spiritual privileges or, or in the, in the case of the church, offices. This was a huge um, source of revenue for the church. People would, would buy an office and, and they would be sold uh, to the highest bidder. Gifts, contributions given in, in exchange for spiritual privileges or, or sacred positions and offices in the church. And so the whole church had become this, this powerful, wealthy uh, political machine rather than the pillar and support of the truth and the household of God. 
Another odd practice in the medieval church was the obsession with relics. Reliquaries were places where relics were collected and displayed. And you could go and and view all of these different relics of dead saints. You could view their bones or their ashes or some article of clothing that allegedly belonged to them or uh, some personal possession that had been found that belonged to one of these famous people. A splinter from Jesus' cross was found in Turkey. In fact, it's been said that a large boat could be constructed from all the pieces of wood that allegedly came from Jesus' cross. Jesus' baby blanket was found in Germany. Uh, The index finger, by the way, of John the Baptist, you can go see in Kansas City. That's right. The index finger of John the Baptist. Now, the rest of his hand is in a monastery in Montenegro, but his finger is close. And you should all go see it in the museum there. But this is what was going on. And churches were all trying to one up each other. Well, we have this. Well, we have this. And people would go and see these things and pay money to come and, and see all of this stuff. And during the Middle Ages, it was, it was proliferated and it was highly venerated. In fact, church architecture was, was changed to accommodate, to make space for relics. In fact, if you visited old churches that date back a thousand years or so, you've seen these rooms and just, the, the, the walls are lined with, with relics. And it became a huge profiteering scam because people would pay money to see all of these religious artifacts, believing that they were endowed with supernatural powers. Pilgrimages was another uh, related thing that if you were really devout, really wanted to show how spiritual you were, or if you really wanted the ultimate spiritual experience, you take a pilgrimage. On foot, you would walk to one of these holy places, shrines, and there were many of them. And, of course, the ultimate ones would be to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to Rome. And this was encouraged by the church. This would be a huge thing for the average person to do because the average pilgrimage would take several months, maybe even a year round trip. And they would walk on foot. It was a huge sacrifice, a very costly thing. But if you prayed at one of these holy sites, your sins would be forgiven. Or you would have a better chance of making it into heaven. Spiritual rewards, acts of penance, proof of devotion, insurance against famine or plague were some of the other things people believed were associated with making these pilgrimages. Or uh, different shrines, maybe... um, um, emphasized a different, a different saint. And so you would go to that shrine to pray to a certain saint who was supposedly the saint that could cure you of a particular illness or whatever it might be. But all of it was superstitious spirituality that kept people in darkness and bondage when the true gospel could have set them free. Monasticism was another prominent feature of this period. And that's what Martin Luther resorted to. Uh, he, he 
believed it would help him find God. He was desperate to find God, to find grace. And so he became a monk. Actually, he was a very successful law student. That's what his father wanted him to be, a lawyer. And he had gone to the university to study law, and he was a very successful student, very very uh, intelligent person, brilliant man. Uh, but one day he was returning to the university from a trip home. He was riding on horseback, and a lightning bolt struck right near him, and it scared him to death. He thought it was the judgment of God upon him. He, he, he took it as a sign from God that you need to get serious about your spiritual life. And he cried out, St. Anne, save me, I'll become a monk. And he did. And he became an Augustinian monk. And, of course, uh, that meant a life of, of rigorous self-denial. Uh, it meant devotion to the study of, of Scripture, study of Latin, prayer, confession, celibacy, and all that goes with monastic life. But it also meant the complete withdrawal from the world, from the secular world. And, and that was the viewpoint, that to be truly spiritual, you had to do that. That was your only hope. And so monasteries created this illusion of superior spirituality that can only be achieved by extreme asceticism and separation. The proliferation of sacraments is another factor, another development of the Roman Catholic Church. As Protestants, we have ordinances, don't we? And two of them only. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And, and they're called ordinances because they were ordered or ordained by the Lord himself in the Gospels and then also practiced and promoted by the apostles in the book of Acts and the, and the epistles of the New Testament. But only two of them. Well, the Catholic Church has instituted seven. And they are called sacraments because they are sacred acts that you must do. They become the means of grace. And that if you observe each of these sacraments along the way at each station of your life as appropriate, that will put you on the path to obtain salvation. Transubstantiation was another point of contention. Transubstantiation is the view that the bread and the wine used for communion actually turns into the body and blood of Jesus. That, that the water and, and wine or juice, whichever it is, are actually transformed. The, the substance is transformed. That's the name transubstantiation. They become what they're not. They become something else. They become literally the body and blood of, of Christ. And of course, for that to happen, it has to be administered by the priest. He has the magic touch that makes that work, and only he. In fact, that's what um, becoming a priest meant. That's what ordination meant. Upon you was conferred the authority to make that miracle happen. Only you were allowed to administer the sacraments. Only you could make it efficacious, an efficacious means of grace to the people. Well, Protestants protest that. And so that became one of the talking points of the Reformation. What really happens at the communion table? But when Luther nailed his 95 theses to that door, 
he was ultimately protesting the sale of indulgences. This was the key thing. This was the, this was the turning point. Indulgences, what, what is that? Well, they were letters, basically, that were granted to you um, or, or given to you as a, as a, as a sort of a, a pardon. Um, they were sold by the church as a way for you to shave off time from purgatory. And purgatory, by the way, is another invention of the Catholic Church, not found in the Bible. But you could buy these indulgences for yourself and for others. And it became a very powerful way for the church to raise money. In fact, that became the cause of their abuse. Um, Old St. Peter's Cathedral, Old St. Peter's Basilica, which had been built way back in the 4th century or whenever, uh, had been condemned. And so uh, the construction process for a new basilica was underway, but the church had run out of money. And so Pope Leo X struck a deal by which the empty coffers of the papacy could be filled and St. Peter's completed. And the means was simony. A man named Albert of Brandenburg aspired to become the Archbishop of Mainz. And so he and the Pope began to haggle about the price. The Pope demanded 12,000 ducats, 12,000 gold pieces for the 12 apostles. Albert offered 7,000 for the seven deadly sins. They compromised on 10,000, presumably for the Ten Commandments. And so Albert found a German bank who would loan him the money, and then he paid it off by selling indulgences. To do that, he needed a very successful salesman, which he found in a man named Tetzel, Johann Tetzel. And this is what they would do. Now listen to this. They had indulgence preachers. And these guys would go around from town to town in this solemn procession and all the regalia of the Roman Catholic Church and so on, bearing the cross and the papal arms and the Pope's bull and so on. And they would, they would move into town and they would set all this up in the town square and they would plant the cross right in the middle of town. And the indulgence preachers would begin, and this is what they would say. Consider the salvation of your souls and those of your departed loved ones. Visit the holy cross erected before you. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends beseeching you and saying, Pity us, pity us. We're in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, We bore you. We nourished you. Brought you up. Left you our fortunes. And you are so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? What do you think happened? 
people lined up to buy those indulgences to get their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. And the name Tetzel became synonymous with the famous jingle, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And people went home believing that the cross Tetzel planted in their town square had just as much or more value than the cross of Christ. People were actually buying indulgences for the sins they hadn't committed yet, but were intending to. (laughs) Well, that is what Martin Luther was protesting. Young, idealistic priest, professor of theology, he really believed that a lively debate could fix all of this. And so he nailed his 95 theses to the door with this preamble. Out of love and zeal for truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther. And he wrote this paper, 95 theses, 95 sentences that all protested the sale of indulgences and the abuse of the people by the church doing that. Well, he never got the chance for that disputation. Some lecture, uh, some students that he lectured had copied it and distributed it. And before he knew it, the news had spread all the way to Rome. There's a wild boar in God's vineyard. Now, all of that, all those words, all of that stuff that was going on, all of that religious system, we could call one word, sacerdotalism. That was for you, Bev. Sacerdotalism. Write that down. Let me know how it goes using that in conversation this week. Sacerdotalism is is the belief that priests are necessary. They are the necessary mediators between us and God. And that really is the genius of the Roman Catholic Church, to keep everyone dependent upon the priest. All spiritual life, all blessing, all hope, all truth for you can only come through your priest. He's the mediator. I mean, who is it that touches the bread and the wine and turns it into the body and blood of Jesus and blesses it and makes it an efficacious means of grace for you? The the priest. Who do you confess your sins to? The priest. Who can pardon you? The priest. Who marries you? The priest. Who, Who gives last rites to you? The priest. Everything in your spiritual life centers around the priest and his administration of the sacraments. He's the mediator between you and God. And so in the Catholic Church, there is this unbiblical veneration for the priesthood. As if we can't approach God without him. We can't be saved without him. We can't receive grace without him. Well, we protest that. We protest that. 
Jesus is our priest, isn't he? He's the only mediator between God and men, and he's the only one we need. In fact, it's amazing, isn't it? Now, in Christ, we are all priests, right? A kingdom of priests. And we don't need any other human agency to be that. We have direct access to God through Christ. Not the Pope or the priest or the Virgin Mary or the saints. We don't need to observe sacraments or pilgrimages to earn salvation. We don't have to be a monk or a nun to be godly and holy in this world. We don't need to view relics or buy indulgences to have our sins forgiven. And we know that. Why? Post Tenebras looks. Because after this long period of darkness came light. God never leaves himself without a witness, does he? Jesus said, I will build my church. And he is faithful to do that by raising up faithful servants who bring us back to the Bible. And that really is what the Reformation was all about. That's what the Reformers did. Now, let me introduce you briefly and quickly to a few of them. Uh, Just a very few, really. There's so many more that we could mention. The people that led the Reformation. Long before Luther nailed it, there were other voices crying in the wilderness. For example, John Wycliffe. Um, You've heard of Wycliffe Bible translators. Well, he's the guy. That that's named for. He is called the morning star of the Reformation. His main contribution was to translate the Latin Bible into English. He translated the Vulgate into the vernacular of the common English speaking people, what we would know as really old English. Um, but he did that. In fact, what you'll see is, is really the refrain that runs all through the Reformation is. Is just that. It's, it's getting the Bible into the hands of the common people. That's really what was the catalyst that God used to cause the Reformation to happen. Getting the Bible into the hands of the common people so people could read it, could, could hear it. And, and really the Reformation was that. It was a return to hearing and reading and, and preaching the Word of God. Standing on his shoulders, later would come a man, William Tyndale, who took it even further and not simply translated the Latin into English, but went back to the original Hebrew and Greek and translated that into English. William Tyndale. John Huss is another uh, early or pre-Reformation reformer from Prague, Czechoslovakia. He led the Bohemian Reformation. He's most famous for the prophecy that he made while he was being burned at the stake. As the flames were, were licking his body, he said, you can cook this goose. That's what the name Hus meant. You can cook this goose, but after me will come a swan whom you will not be able to silence. And sure enough, Luther, a hundred years later, was that swan. And he would lead the reform in Germany and, of course, be the founder of the Lutheran church worldwide. Then from there, the the Reformation, it just 
like wildfire spread. It spread across Europe. Uh, William Tyndale and others in England. Um, John Calvin. Jean Calvin in, in Switzerland. Ulrich uh, Zwingli, Zwingli in, uh, in Zurich in, in, in Switzerland as well. John Knox in Scotland. John Glasser in Springdale. <laughs> what? I don't... Blame, blame it on one of those guys back there. That, I don't know where that came from. We'll talk about some of those reformers in more detail as we go. It's really their legacy, though, that I want to emphasize and focus on in this series the pillars that lead the Reformed, the doctrinal distinctives that, that grew out of the, the Reformation are what we call the five solas, the five solas, five Latin phrases that really, that really capture the convictions that both fueled and followed the Reformation. The first one has to do with the issue of authority because the Reformation was about authority. That was the issue. Who has authority? The church? The pope? God? Is the faith and practice of the church defined by the scripture or by the scripture plus something else? And so the reformers defended sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our sole authority and sole source of truth. Sola fide was the second one, faith alone, because the Reformation was very much a protest of the church's view that salvation was by faith plus works. Solo Christo was another, Christ alone, which we now sing in that great song, the Gettys wrote, or solus Christus, through Christ alone. He's the head of the church. He's the great High priest. He's the one and only Savior whose one and only sacrifice for sins made full atonement and brought complete forgiveness. Sola gratia is another one. Grace alone, because salvation is by grace alone, isn't it? In fact, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then all of that Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And those are the pillars of the Protestant Reformation. And those are the pillars of the Protestant church still today. And I would say to you that we need to guard them. We need to not take them for granted Today we have our own darkness to deal with. We have our own distortions and perversions of the true gospel. We have our own corruptions and superstitions and traditions that plague the church. And so we have our own reformation to contend for. It isn't over. And we need to learn from history so that we are not doomed to repeat it. Paul's charge to the church in Acts chapter 20 is maybe a 
a good way to end. It's just as relevant for us today as it was the day he spoke it. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. Amen. Stand with me and let us close our time in prayer. I would remind you that our prayer room is open. We are here to Minister to you personally if we can. Answer any questions you may have about the gospel or becoming a Christian or becoming a part of this Protestant church. We'd welcome the opportunity to visit with you in the prayer room out the back and down the hall to the right. Father, bless us as we take this time in the next few weeks to shine the spotlight on the Reformation. Give us the grace to learn what we can from it. May we appreciate those who have gone before us to defend the truth from error, to define sound doctrine and deliver it to us, pure and unadulterated. May we, may we love your church and may we love your gospel as, as much as, as they did. May we even be modern-day champions of these five solas in our own lives and in ministries and in our church here. We pray it all for Christ's sake. Amen.